All right. We can talk about logos on the show, too, maybe. Who knows? Libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor, talking logos. <laughs> That'll be our big one. It fits. It fits the scheme. So we're good to go. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, gang, welcome back to not only another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast, but to a little thing we like to do once in a while, our little roundtable known as Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, where myself and some fellow Libertarians, Libertarian-leaning folks, however you want to call us, get together over a few adult beverages and we have a little chat and we just see where it goes. It's the least scripted of all shows we do here. It's become a popular feature, so we bring it back to you again here around Thanksgiving time. Now, we've got a slightly lighter crew than usual. Um, a little bit short staff this week. Apparently, some people that we're associated with here on this site actually enjoy spending time with their family or maybe just going out and getting drunk on Thanksgiving Eve. I don't know what they're doing, but apparently it's more important that, to them than liberty. But not to me and not to the folks I've got on the line with me. So we're going to start first with the Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor regular. He's a regular at the bar here. All the way from Pittsburgh, PA, all the way across the country. John Odermatt, welcome back. What's going on, Mark? It is great to be back, as always. Do you mean that? That sounded a little canned. I don't know. Do you? Yeah, is I it might, really great know, to be I, back? I actually thought I thought about that ahead of time. Should I say this? And I did. So yeah, I guess it was canned a little bit. It was canned, but you still mean it. It is great to be here, isn't it? I do mean it. It's always great to be All here. Right. And I mean, I'm not going to let the uh, you know going to the bars stop me from drinking. You know, have a have a couple drinks here with me. I have a little bit of Jim Beam on the rocks. All right. And also, I'm actually really excited about this. Um, I'm drinking Sweetwater 420. I don't know if that's a uh, a beer you guys have heard of. It's act- for a while it was only available in the state of Georgia, but it, it sounds just... like something I would need a medical uh, medical <laughs> prescription to buy out here in California. No, no, no? there's okay. no uh, there's no uh, marijuana in it. It's okay. just a uh, straight up uh, pale ale. It's delicious. And they just started selling it in Ohio. So that's why I have it here in uh, Pennsylvania. All right. So one more point for Ohio for anybody uh, thinking about <laughs> thinking about moving. Different, I, I think I heard another laugh there. That That's our other guest making his first appearance on the Lions of Liberty podcast in the Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor Living Room, all the way from Philadelphia, PA, my man, J.B. Lubin. What's going on, buddy? Nothing much, man. Thank you for inviting me onto the show, and I hope to have a good time. Talking with you guys, drinking a little bit of liquor. A little bit of liquor. And what exactly are you drinking over there, JB? Well, I've got, I decided to go old world with it, as I often do. I went with the Balvenie, the triple cast. It's a 12-year scotch. Very tasty. Well, I'm not surprised you went with the old world. Yeah, I'm an old world kind of guy. You know, it probably comes as no surprise to you. Considering your French origins, um, you know, not not to out you on the show already. This, it, oh, less than a minute yeah. into your appearance, but, you know. I've already dropped several points in some people's eyes before I even began, so we'll see if I can salvage this. No, I, I'm proud. Proud of my roots. That's right. And like I mentioned, it's your first appearance here 
on the Lions of Liberty podcast in our little drinking living room here. So why don't you just give everybody just, I don't know, maybe the cliff nose version of, obviously, like like the other guys that appear on the show, we've all known each other from college, so you don't need to go into the finer details of how we necessarily first met, maybe on another show, but how did you first, I guess, get interested in sort of all this Liberty stuff? I mean, obviously, you're a Frenchman, so it wasn't really necessarily in your blood, but <laughs> per se, but how did you get into all this stuff, and you know, how did you lead your yourself to where you at least um we obviously like we, we talked before the show we don't always see uh exactly eye to eye on things but that's what makes you know these conversations fun um so how did you get i guess um i, I would say sympathetic to our ideas why don't we why don't we start start with that description well yeah that's that's a pretty good way of saying it but i'm definitely far more in your camp than i would even say from a, a year ago for hey, example hey. but um basically Unlike, I think, maybe most of you, I grew up in a liberal household, decidedly left-leaning household. Probably, you could say, when we first met in college, I was a pretty staunch socialist, and I'm not ashamed to say that, like, in an actual, like, real socialist sense. Like, socialist party, as opposed to, you know, maybe a liberal Democrat being called a socialist. Oh, you're like, you were, like, hardcore. Yeah, an actual socialist. (laughs) Um... But as I as I left college and I learned some new things, primarily from you, you started introducing me to the writings of Ron Paul. I picked up his book and um, I started reading it. And a lot of the things he said started to make sense. But I was still holding out in the sense that from the pure libertarian landscape that some people like on your show and you, for example, um, portray, it seemed very unfeasible to me on the logistical level. But um, several people that you've put on, especially um, folks like Shane Whistler, put it in a way that seemed to be able to actually be incorporated in a real-life you know, setting, as opposed to just being a, how could I put it, a philosophical debate and something that can actually work in, actual, in real society with real people. So that's definitely put me more in the libertarian camp than I would say maybe even a year ago. So the show's working on me, you know? It's actually doing what you want it to well, do. Well, that's so. good. I'm, that's exactly. I'm a to that. How about that? <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I need to the, capture that sound bite and, and use it in our promo at some point. Um, yeah, because, I mean, that's I, I did the show for a couple reasons. One, it's just I love listening to podcasts. You know, so I've been listening to all sorts of different podcasts for years. So, obviously, as I become more a fan of the medium in general, and at the same time, we at the very same time period, we're starting our website. We're spreading our ideas in that way and doing all this writing. So, you know, at some point it just seemed like a natural fit to just translate what we've been doing at the website at lionsofliberty.com and translating it into a podcast. And, you know, it's been a heck of a journey. It was definitely uh, some rough, uh, some stumbles out of the gate. And uh, I'm stumbling every day because I'm not a professional. I never did anything on the radio before this. I never did anything like this before. But, you know, um, the more I do it, the, the, you know, the better it goes. And, and when I get back to the reasons I do it, now, it's not just, it's a couple reasons. Obviously, I want to get people like yourself more interested in these ideas, looking at different ways to think about things. But I also want to change my own views or my own perspectives, I should say, and, and, and talk to my guests. And I've had so many great guests on that, that many of them, while they share a lot of the same principles, um, I guess maybe that overriding libertarian principle of non-aggression. I mean, I think almost all of my guests probably subscribe to that principle or, or uh, you know, something close to it. 
but they all have different ways of kind of looking at things. Some some people are just call themselves anarcho capitalists, and they think there should just be nothing known as government, and everything should be run by private firms, and that's certainly one way to look at things. But when you try to actually, I don't want to, I hate using the word sell because it feels like a marketing thing. But when you want to um, get people to look at things in a sort of different way and take a different viewpoint, you can't necessarily bombard them with a drastically new worldview. What you need to do is just kind of show them in context of you know the the real world world we're living in, how we can just look at things in a different way. And that doesn't mean I'm a statist and there are some people that will just start calling me that immediately when I don't say destroy the government, don't say end the state. But at the end of the day, the state, the government is just an organization made up of individuals. And when those individuals have bad ideas, there's going to be some really bad results. But the same thing goes for corporations. And I see all too many libertarians, even including past versions of myself, just defending anything that's the free market and anything that's a corporation merely because it is and corporations just like governments are made up of people and they can do bad things too so I think it makes a lot more sense to and this is something I think I've has been a big part of my evolution I think doing the show has been a big part of it is just adapting the message in a way that makes sense to most people and the way to make sense to people isn't to try to drastically change the way they see the structures of the world but to change the way they view just their basic interactions with their fellow man and each other and you know that is definitely the longest rant I've ever gone on um, on the show without even finishing my first drink. So I'm going to get on that for a second while you guys uh, talk to each other about what I just said. Odie, why don't you take it for a minute? <laughs> that's that's fantastic. The uh, the post-show rap or post-show rant normally right in the middle of the show. It's, it's yeah, great. I decided I like to mix up the format this week. As we yeah. know on Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. There is no format. We have vague ideas about what we're going to talk about. But um, as you can see by the first few minutes here, we've already gone off what we thought we were going to talk about, which was the events in Ferguson. And I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, go ahead and, and rant about my rant. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, speaking about podcasting and uh, you starting this podcast, I mean, you've talked about it before. But, I mean, you just kind of, you know, just hit play one day and just, just started rolling. And, uh, you know, that's... It's a fantastic thing, and it's amazing to see how how far this show has come. I mean, um, the guests you've had so far, uh, the your recent guests uh, included, uh, the Scott Horton interview was awesome. It's always speaking of rants. I mean, it's always great <laughs> listening to a good old uh, Scott <laughs> oh, Horton. Scott uh, can Horton. rant. He is one of the the <laughs> best ranters out there, and the best part about him is he's not just. Um, he, he rants, but his rants are so filled with knowledge. I mean, he's like a living encyclopedia about foreign policy. He knows just everything that's going on in the Middle East and everywhere else. So it's really a it's a phenomenal thing to sit back and listen to. And that, that was a nice show for me because I didn't have to do that much work. <laughs> I yeah, just had to tee him up and let him go. It's it's unreal. I I actually had to listen to it twice. I mean, I I listened to some shows twice, but this one I had to because I mean there was just so much content that you know I, I missed the first time through just to pick it up on the history of ISIS and going back and I you know in Iraq to before Saddam Hussein even and all the way through on how ISIS formed and how it formed from being Al Qaeda in Iraq and George Bush's involvement and Barack Obama's involvement. I'm not going to go into it here. Just go back and listen to the podcast. It was, yeah, it's the it was last phenomenal. episode, folks. Just click back one in your iTunes feed or your Stitcher feed or over at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast where we have the full archive. See, I'm getting the plugs in early, too. I'm getting my rants in early. I'm just trying go. to get the checklist <laughs> done so we can really let ourselves go and I can finish it. By the way, I never mentioned what I was drinking. Um, I've actually, I'm actually drinking right. something I've drank on the show before, um, which is it's this time of year. You know, it's fall. And I, you guys might not, might not think it's chilly for me out here in L.A., but 
You know what? When you've lived here, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, one of the coldest places in the country, but I've lived in Los Angeles for over a decade now, and... You know, when it starts to get in the 50s, I'm calling that chilly now. And guess what? It's getting chilly for me anyway. You you guys will laugh at me and, and tell pretty, me it's a joke. Pretty but, um, sad admission from a native Northeasterner, I yeah, have to say. Well, you know, that is weak, weak you, sauce. Yeah. Spend, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I would have said the same thing to myself 10 years ago, so I, I fully understand. But, you know, try spending 10 years in this beautiful weather, and you'll start to get chilly too. My point being, I wanted to warm myself up with a nice, uh, nice hot cider drink. So I'm drinking a little spiced cider and uh, mix with some rum. And um, I've had this a couple times on the show. It's kind of my, my go-to uh, when it's a brisk uh, 50, 60 degrees. So so that's what I'm drinking. I never covered that. I, I have a big habit of forgetting to inform the audience of what my, my drink is. I'm so busy trying to extract all the info from you guys. So didn't want to let that one go. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the world. It is Thanksgiving, so there's a lot to be thankful for. But uh, there's a lot to, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say be unthankful for, but... Um, there's a lot of things to be concerned about, I suppose you might say, and obviously the all of the outrage, and there's outrage on every side of things, um, but oh, there's so much attention this week specifically being paid to the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and um, I don't know. I, I don't know how much you guys have followed the case. I haven't followed it all that closely because, I mean, you know, we're buried, our heads are buried in this stuff, and we see stuff like the shooting of Michael Brown Every day, and I'm not I'm not talking about specifics wise because you know a lot of the evidence has shown that it's it's at least possible that it was a true self defense situation. Um, but you know we see every day when there are clear cut cases of people being shot by the police and and are and killed and receiving very little repercussions. And you know a lot of those cases seem to fly under the radar. So when a, a case gets national like this. You know, I always, first of all, I always wonder why, why, what specifically these cases that, that, you now the Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin case, or this one with, um, Darren Wilson and Michael Brown, why these become the big headlines when the 12 year old boy shot in Ohio, who was holding a BB gun, shot by police, not a national headline. Um, the gentleman, I think this is also in Ohio, in Walmart, uh, buying an airsoft gun, a completely legal gun, uh, purchasing that gun in the store was killed by police as well. And this is just to name a couple incidents that I've seen in the last few weeks let alone the last few years of really being into this stuff. So in some ways, I get kind of um, cold to it. I mean, not cold to it, but just like, oh, another one kind of thing. And so it's really hard to fi- to, to kind of follow the little details of every single situation. But uh, I don't know. How much of you guys have been following this stuff? JB, you actually, uh, I think you lived in St. Louis for a little bit. So are you familiar with the area of Ferguson? Do you know anybody that you know knows much about this case from, from that perspective? No, not really. I lived in St. Louis for seven months total, okay. a three, a four-month stint followed by a three-month stint about a year later. And I st- stuck mostly to the city. I, d- I was there for work, so I didn't really do much exploring. So I I never went to Ferguson nor knew anyone from there. It's not on the uh, the, the tourist must-do uh, stop list, I guess. No, that they, certainly not. They but, you know. But yeah, I did live in St. Louis, but being such a transient, I never really got a good vibe of the city, and particularly nothing to do with its race relations, you know. It has its typical, you know, a city feel where, you know, it seems socially segregated to a certain extent, but, you know, I couldn't say if it was any worse than Philadelphia or New York cities that I'm more intimately as familiar with. My sister actually lives in St. Louis. She's lived there for 15 years or so. So I've been I've been there a bunch of times, especially now I have a nephew there as well. So I'm going a little more frequently. And um, I know statistically um, St. Louis, quote unquote St. Louis, you know, I get, they encompass the whole city in the county when they, I think, do these stats. But 
as I, I believe, I don't want to say the highest, as, as I've mentioned, I don't do research for these shows at all. Uh, the regular shows I do, but these little shows, no, no research. This is when I want to relax and just have a chat with you guys. Uh, it's, I believe it's the highest murder rate or highest violent crime rate in the country, but most of that it doesn't really include the city proper when, when they do, it does include the city proper when they do those deaths, but it also includes these some of these outlying, I guess, districts. And, you know, I, I remember being in St. Louis visiting one time and we're, we're driving down the freeway and there's this huge wall. And I was like, what's on, what's the wall? And it's like, I, I don't remember the exact words my sister said. It wasn't, she wasn't saying it in a derogatory way, just describing the situation. And she, I mean, basically the point was that's kind of where the poor people live. Essentially, it was in this sort of, not that it's literally, there's not a wall around it, but there was a wall on the freeway. And that that's kind of a, a separate area of St. Louis. It's kind of not in the city proper, in the place you would just walk around, but it statistically um, is, you know, what gives St. Louis that high ranking as a violent, uh, high-crime city. So, and obviously the city itself of St. Louis is very nice, so, you know, that just knowing that tends to tell you there is you know, before analyzing it any further, a very large disparity, at least, um, you know, uh, taking place in that city as, as there are in every other, you know, major city in somewhere or another, but it does seem uh, that it is a little more pronounced in St. Louis than in other places. The reasons for that, I don't know. Maybe I'll do some research after the show and find a guest that, that has not thoughts on that. I think St. Louis is really an interesting case in the sense that I think only around 300,000 people live in actual St. Louis, the city proper. And, most of what constitutes as quote-unquote St. Louis is a lot of the surrounding area, like St. Louis County, perhaps, where a lot of people live in the suburbs and the city kind of lost, like had a population drain. Like when I lived there, even in the seven months, I remember going just a few blocks north of the place I was staying and there would be blocks and blocks of houses that were completely empty. Right. And I think St. Louis was one of those cities like in the mid-20th century that had like a million people lived there, and then it, they slowly just bled to the suburbs, and only 300,000 lived there. So maybe that's why they incorporate the entire area, or maybe that's why St. Louis has such a high per capita rate, because it's so small. It's like like you said, I didn't do any research on this. So no, no, no research on this show. We d- this These shows are purely speculation. <laughs> yeah, but I know at least that it's a fairly small city when you consider major cities. I don't even think half a million people live in. Oh, for sure. City and and it, it, when you're there, even going out and driving around, it 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 doesn't necessarily. It feels like a city, but it doesn't feel like New York or L.A. It doesn't feel like a major city. It still feels like a small town that's kind of uh, in the shape of a city. If that if that makes any sense. Oh no, that makes perfect sense. Like I live in Philadelphia now, but I'm a New York native, and. It doesn't, when I first got there, it wasn't what I expected because it seemed a lot smaller than the cities of the Northeast. Yeah, absolutely. A lot less going on. But, you know, it is what it is. There was a uh, article that I read in the Washington Post way, way back when um, the Michael Brown uh, story first broke. And I, I think it was actually written by um, someone I went to high school with, Chico Harlan, who is an excellent writer for the Post. That's an awesome he, name. Yeah, yeah, he was actually nicknamed. I, I played baseball with him growing up. He was nicknamed after the great Pirates second baseman Jose Chico Lind. So, can uh, take that one and uh, look it up to remember Chico Lind. But I can't anyway. say I do, but but moving <laughs> <No>. on. <laughs> I'm sure he was fantastic. But anyway, so the, I, I don't remember specifics. I don't have the article in front of me, but it talked about a uh, main street that goes through St. Louis. And on the one side of the street were the, were the poorer, mostly uh, African-American neighborhoods. On the other side of the street were the you know, more wealthy white neighborhoods. And it said that all of the police officers 
from the Ferguson Police Department lived in the wealthy area and obviously travel into uh, to patrol the other area. But I guess the you know distinction was was that sharp. Just walking across the street, you know, would change you know 180 degrees. To me personally, it's not all that shocking. I would I don't know if this is justified or not, but St. Louis and that area, Missouri in general, has a notorious reputation for segregation in the sense that it is highly segregated. I don't I'm not necessarily saying this is by you know local decree but maybe it's just social segregation but if you were to tell me this and in any other setting i wouldn't be surprised to hear it because it's kind of has that reputation for being a place like that there's very little mixing of the races in that area sure and i think that you know that that social segregation that you mentioned is it's kind of a big reason why an incident like this, regardless of the facts surrounding it, and I think the facts are sort of murky, but regardless of the facts of the actual event, you know, they take on a life of their own because there is so much, I guess, anger and resentment uh, built up in these communities that do see this great disparity. They don't see the same opportunities that they might see the other people having, you know, and there are very real reasons for this so that then when an incident like this does occur and maybe when this community has maybe seen a lot of harassment from the police, maybe there has been a lot of enforcement of drug laws upon poor communities, many people of which might deal drugs to to get by and, and, you know, pay the bills. You know, maybe there are a lot of, I actually read an article, again, no research on this show, but that, um, you know, people in Ferguson are fined on average some crazy amount. Maybe I'll actually do research while we're talking here and look this up. But it's, it's a crazy amount per household of people in Ferguson that get fined um, for just regular stuff, jaywalking and, and that kind of thing. And guess what? When, when you're like me and I get a jaywalking ticket or I've never gotten a jaywalking ticket. I don't even know if that's a real thing. It is a real thing though, but, <laughs> but I've never gotten one, but you know, when, when I get a ticket and I, I'm, I just get, yeah, I get annoyed by it. I either pay it. I usually fight it and try to get off of it. But, you know, I, I deal with it in whatever way I can deal with it. But a lot of other people, a lot of poor people and people that just aren't educated on how the legal system works when they get a ticket, it ends up encapsulating them in this legal system and then maybe they miss the payment or, or they don't know how to fight it and then they miss a court appearance next thing I know they got a warrant for their arrest and now they're in now they're just sucked into this cycle and they can't afford real legal help they can't afford a, a way to navigate this very complicated at times legal system and that creates this even further disparity when you have one community that sees itself as being preyed upon you know, while just seeing other communities, maybe across the street or, you know, over the wall or whatever you want to call it, uh, having prosperity and having their great jobs and their nice cars. And, you know, there it doesn't mean that it justifies the anger because the anger is, I think, largely misdirected. And we'll get to that. But uh, you can at least see how an incident like this can definitely set off um, a, a lot of anger in the community. So what, what are you guys thoughts on that? while I try to do some research. Well, I, I found the article that I was talking about, and uh, the name of the, the road or street is Delmar Boulevard. That, I remember uh, it. Uh, you, you remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's, okay. there's a place called the Delmar Loop where it has a lot of bars and like restaurants and stuff like that. It's a place to go out. And a few blocks, like I guess, east of there is where there's a lot of abandoned homes and rows and okay. rows of places where no one lives, which I found to be very strange. So I guess it's a pretty major road or pretty, you know, a lot of business yeah. business on it, I guess. Yeah, I would say definitely. Well, I, I just saw, I found an article on Reason. Um, it's, it's about Rand Paul and how he's been, you know, one of the only politicians to actually go to Ferguson and and speak out about, you know, uh, the criminal justice system and that kind of thing. But uh, the article mentions how the uh, petty fines are a source of two million dollars of revenue for the city of Ferguson. 
I mean, that's just an insane, especially when you consider the, you know, the, the small, you know, population-wise of the specific community of Ferguson. The fact that the police, and maybe sometimes the fines are justified, I, I don't know, on a case-by-case basis, but, you know, when a poor community is having that much extracted from them, not just on by taxes and the regular city fees, simply from petty fines, like traffic violations and that kind of thing, I mean, that's just an example of how, how you can see how this resentment is is building. And now, let's say, and I don't, I don't know the statistics, but I'm going to venture a guess that the majority of the police officers enforcing this stuff are white. And I'm going to, you know, in, in a community that we know is largely black. And, and I'm not saying that justifies the anger anymore. But again, it's something else where you can just see how over time, when they just see this disparity, they see maybe other truly violent crimes that are not justified perpetrated by the police on their community. That when this an incident like this, like this actually does occur, and the initial reports are all saying, hands up, don't shoot, is what the kid was saying, holding his hands in the air. Of course, further reports are, are sort of contradicting that. But, you know, what what do they say? You know, whenever they, you know, newspapers give a retraction or something, they always say, well, that's great. You give a retraction. But nobody remembers the retraction. Nobody remembers the stories that come out later. Everybody remembers that first initial headline, that first initial report. And that's what's still being sort of reported today with the hands up, don't shoot thing. So it's, you tie all this together as sad as it is, it's it's not a shock we're seeing a repeat of the Rodney King situation that was out here in LA. We're seeing a community that has been brutalized in various ways and has legitimate reasons to be angry about a lot of things reacting in a very improper way and reacting violently. I don't justify the violence at all, and I don't, and I don't think either you will, but you can still, just like we can see identifiable causes for terrorism... We can see all the military interventions abroad in communities overseas and how dropping bombs on people's houses and killing people in those communities will cause a backlash. And sometimes that backlash manifests itself in the form of a terrorist attack. Just the same we can see in a community like Ferguson where it has definitely been victimized in many ways, including just by the war on drugs itself, not necessarily even the, you know, the local police. But when you see that all build up, you can definitely see that regardless of the incident that set it off, you know, there are definitely, you know, actual identifiable sources for the anger. Whether or not they're being channeled towards this specific incident properly is a, is a different discussion. It's not really a different discussion. It's the same discussion. It's just where we're going next. So so uh, what, what are you guys' thoughts on that, that portion of, uh, I guess, the story about just kind of how these communities build up anger before we actually try to get into the specifics of what's going on there? Well, you bring up a, a very valid point in the sense that if this community feels that they're constantly being preyed on, that this over time is going to build up an inherent distrust of the legal system and, uh, I guess, the overseers of this said legal system. So they're obviously going to be much more inclined to believe the story that this, this police officer overstepped his bounds and did some things that he shouldn't be doing, which if constant, their everyday every day-to-day interaction with the police are things where they feel they shouldn't be doing. So I, I, not necessarily to say I don't blame them, but if you put someone in the position where they don't trust law enforcement, of course they're going to be more likely to believe law enforcement are doing the wrong thing when situations like this arise, how, however ambiguous it might be. They're going to tend to think the negative versus giving them the benefit of the doubt. Right. Odie, what about you? Yeah, I, I would I would mostly agree with that. I mean, um, you know, I'm I'm not. I mean, obviously the the rioting and uh, and destruction of property isn't justified, but I can oh, definitely not at see. All. I, I'm yeah. not advocating. I, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying. But. Not saying you were. Um, but I mean, I, I can definitely see. What, you know, the anger being justified for sure. But sp- speaking of the rioting, um, 
being justified. I'm going to have a uh, little little uh, piece in the uh, one of the stories in the Roar tomorrow is an article uh, talking about an article from Time Magazine. And that's the morning Roar. For those that aren't uh, regular readers of our website, but you can read the Morning Roar every Monday to Friday at lionsofliberty.com. Quick plug back to you, Odie. <laughs> the Morning Roar. That's right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And it was it was written by uh, Darlena Kuna. I think that's how you say it. Maybe not, but I don't really care. And uh, <laughs> she um, writes this very, uh, I don't know, it's convoluted, confusing argument talking about why this destruction of property and rioting is justified. And just to read one, one segment here, um, where is this? I don't like her already, so I, I already don't care that you don't care about her name. So go on. <laughs> Riots are a necessary part of the evolution of society. Unfortunately, we do not live in a universal utopia where people have the basic human rights they deserve simply for existing. And until we get there, the legitimate frustration and and on and on and on. I'm not going to read the rest of that. But I I think it's interesting. I mean, it's it's hard to know. She doesn't doesn't, uh, really, you know, dive into this topic and talk about exactly what basic human rights she's referring to. So it's kind of hard to to counter that argument. Um, I could definitely see, like you were talking about with, uh, you know, drug laws um, and man- mandatory minimum sentencing targeting uh, minority communities. I-, I could see that as being sort of a justification for the anger in-, in this argument here, but definitely not for the the rioting and destruction. And she goes on to to talk about uh, sort of almost blaming capitalism for for this, or you know, using it as an excuse for to justify the rioting and, and the destruction and the fires. But it's a good read, and uh, I'll have a, a better write-up and uh, better thought-out um, comments on it tomorrow in the morning roar. You will if you want to keep your writing job at Lions of Liberty. <laughs> you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul. And you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. 
With a special forward by Ron Paul that has easy to understand questions and answers. Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. Set Money Free. You know, in, uh, in comedians, the car's drinking coffee. They're not really drinking coffee in the car. All right, guys, we are back here once again with my buddies, the Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. For a quick recap, for those of you, no one turns on a podcast halfway through, though, right? But I am, I am streaming on a couple radio stations. So for those that are streaming that might have just tuned in, I've got my buddy JB Lupin all the way in Philly. JB, how you doing? Hello, everyone. Still doing well. And John Odermatt in Philly. I'm not in Philly. I'm sorry. In Pittsburgh. Oh, what's up, Mark? Still you see, here. You see, we're halfway through Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor, so I might mix up your cities. I might slur a word here or there. But, you know, we're adults. We're allowed to we're allowed to sip adult beverages and feel the effects as we have these conversations. Luckily. It's thank- Thanksgiving Eve. Got Thanksgiving Eve, right? of course. And that's why we've got a slightly lighter crew tonight. This is the, the crew that is the most dedicated to liberty that I've ever seen. Because we're willing to sit here in our living rooms or other rooms. We don't need to talk about that right now. On Thanksgiving Eve and have a little conversation to blast out to everyone. So when, when people wake up on Thanksgiving morning, I mean, what better is there to be thankful for than a new episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast featuring the popular Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor feature. I can't think of anything better. This also seems like a good time to announce which I forgot to do at the beginning of the show, that Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor will now be a monthly feature. That's right. So the Lions of Liberty podcast comes out every single week. Of course, to recap, you can sign up on iTunes. You can subscribe there. Subscribe on Stitcher Radio. You can come over to lionsofliberty.com. You can hear us on Truth Be Told Media, or you can hear us at lrn.fm throughout the week. There are many avenues by which you can hear the Lions of Liberty podcast. But now, one out of every four of those shows... We'll feature libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. And that's us this week, having a good old chat. And we have, of course, been talking about the Ferguson situation and about everything that's led up to it. Of course, we haven't really talked about the actual incident itself yet. So um, I'm just going to guess that Odie is is, going to have a decent knowledge of this case. And uh, if he doesn't, we're all just going to be embarrassed and then we're going to be scrambling. So uh, let's roll the dice. Odie, what do you know about the specifics of the actual Michael Brown, Darren Wilson incident? Oh boy, put put on the spot, put on the spot. Um, I know some stuff too. I mean, I'm yeah, saying, I mean, I think I think I we all know some stuff. I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to in this game. So you gotta you gotta lead the way here. Let me yeah. ease my way. Ease I, my I, way here. We'll ease you into the, the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> I, I certainly haven't read the uh, the grand jury testimony, grand jury documents. So I'm definitely nowhere close to an expert, and I'm not going to pretend to be. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're, no- we're kind of going to pretend to be. <laughs> Let's not downplay it. Too okay, much. that's right. I'm, I'm an expert. Just cut that cut that out, John. Thank All right, you, I'm yes. an expert on this, and uh, I, I mean, uh, I think that you know, and I, I did talk about this yesterday in a in a uh, edition or feature of the morning roar that I wrote talking about you know the ambiguity of this case and how much is just not clear cut and i talked about maybe why that's a reason why the media uh chose this case because you know people can see either side they can side with the police officer or they can side with um michael brown and with the protesters and the rioters that's because everything is you know the facts aren't known most of it's hearsay there's witnesses who say that michael brown had his hands up when he was walking uh, had his hands up and he wasn't doing anything threatening towards the officer when uh, when he was shot several times. 
there's witnesses who say that Michael Brown had his head down and was running at Officer Darren Wilson like a football player. Um, so really, it's it's all hearsay, and you know, unfortunately and, and tragically, um, you know, the key witness is is dead. So you can't can't get the uh, the uh, the facts the facts from that side. I don't know. What, what else do you guys think about think about that? JB, I'll toss it to you. Do you have any, what have you heard? Have you heard any? I mean, I know you're not following this that closely, but you know, I, you've obviously seen news about the riots and seen what the media has been talking about. So, what have you gathered just from what you've heard uh, from that, or just maybe maybe from LionsOfLiberty.com, your your favorite yeah. source for liberty news? Well, likewise, I haven't poured into any official documents or anything of that nature. Just mostly getting my news. God, from... I told you guys go over the grand jury full evidence <laughs> before the show. I don't. Under... It's only like what ten thousand pages of stuff. Anyway, that's okay. I, I, I opened. It. <laughs> I, you know, I, I opened one of the documents. You got the uh, envelope then. Okay, you just didn't have time. Understood. All right, go on. But you know, like like John was mentioning before it does actually it doesn't come to me as a surprise the ambiguity is perfect for the media when something's an open and shut case there's really nothing to talk about and being in the new digital age and whatnot and I put that in quotations that you need clicks and you need comments and no one's going to come back to have an argument over the internet on something that's ironclad so the ambiguity fuels this today's the 21st century media Far more than anything that's, you know, dry and clear cut. It generates really no, as cynical as this might sound, ad revenue for them. You know, I'm not going to have get into a heated debate with someone on a, a comments thread on an article on something that there isn't any argument about. So I, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that the media gravitates to such to stories like this, as opposed to things that, you know, maybe like the shooting of the child with the BB gun is concerned or... Maybe more recently, maybe as as late as early as Monday, there was that um, that guy who got shot in Saint um, Salt Lake City by the police officer in front of a Seven Eleven. I don't or, know about that one. What, what can you tell me about that? Well, not much. I actually came across this today, but there was a there was a guy who was I think coming out of a Seven Eleven, and he was uh, was killed by an officer who claimed he was I think again reaching for his waistband. This 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 common thread with everything. That um, I guess this is the go-to if you happen to be in an altercation like that. I don't want to sound too biased towards the officers as I say this. It sounds like I am, but, no, but I it, guess it's, that it's, it's become <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, every single is, case yeah, they say that seem, it's, it does yeah. seem kind of ridiculous. I'm trying to be measured here as much as I can, but it does kind of seem ridiculous to me. But yeah, and he, he obviously was unarmed and he was killed. And these things seem to happen a little bit too much. And and I think you might have mentioned before, a lot of this could be solved just by just having cams. And I don't see what the problem is with that. I don't think that's really an invasion of the privacy of police officers when they're doing a public service. You know, I don't need to see why they need anonymity or anything of the like when, you know, they're supposedly protecting the peace. So, and they wouldn't, and I don't see why there aren't uh, police officers and their unions aren't more strongly advocating for these things because they'll never be involved in these situations if they had that. It would be a cover to the police who don't really have anything to worry about because they don't do these things. Sure. I mean, the, the so, only reason they wouldn't want to have them are, you know, if they would, you know, there was actually a story in LA last year where the, you know, one LAPD department, you know, they all got body cameras and it turned out a lot of them were uh, happened to be dysfunctioning, and it turned out they actually uncovered that they were intentionally sabotaging the cameras. So you got to think, 
and obviously I'm not trying to lump in all police officers. To, well, it's not obvious because like, a lot of people out there, especially a lot of libertarians, do do that. They do lump all police officers together. And I'm sure we've all done it at some point in our own way in a moment of anger. Oh, the police. Oh, the police that. Well, we got to remember, just like I was saying earlier, with government agencies, with corporations, police are individuals, all right? So all of them might do bad things. And look, a lot of laws are bad. A lot of laws are unjust. So even, quote, unquote, good cops are probably out there you know, enforcing very unjust laws. So I think that is where a lot of the anger, especially from libertarians, comes from. But we still have to recognize all police as individuals and judge their specific circumstances and cases individually. But, you know, yeah, LAP, this specific department was found to have intentionally disabled the body cameras. And you you have to wonder why that is, because if if they are concerned about Michael Brown-type incidents where there is where they were just defending themselves and there's confusion over that, you know, the body camera would clear up a lot of that confusion. Um, I do want to put out one interesting argument that I heard, uh, that I saw on Facebook today, and against the body cam, not against it per se, but just giving another take on it where, you know, a police officer was saying, you know, um, with, with a body camera on, I actually have to give out more speeding tickets. I have to actually enforce the laws because if I don't, my, my superiors have evidence that I let people off. And I just thought that was interesting because you hear so much about police abuse and that kind of thing, and that's the only context we think of body cameras on, but you never really think about the stuff we don't see because we don't see it. Like when a cop pulls a kid over and sees some weed in his car and smells some weed in his car and lets the kid off because he's a 17-year-old kid and maybe the officer doesn't want to ruin his life uh, for having some weed. Uh, now if, if that officer has a body camera and maybe his superior sees that, he says, what are you doing? Why aren't you enforcing the law? Why did you let this kid go? And maybe this officer's career ends because of that. I'm not arguing against body cameras because I do think for the reasons we're discussing, they'll be very beneficial um, in situations like that. But it is another perspective to come across. You know, it, maybe it'll cover me. We'll see all the, the bad things that happen and we'll have a clearer idea. But I don't know. Will police have feel well, like they need to uh, they need to be stricter, I guess, and not be more lenient against you know some things where they might normally just let people off? Well, you know that 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 could theoretically happen, but I feel that's a bit grasping at straws. I always envision the the police body cam being something to akin to the store um, security cam, where you only look at the video if something happened. Right. They're not going to sit and watch eight hours of video every day. Exactly. <laughs> take, take a city like Philadelphia, for example, how many police officers they have and how many shifts that run 24 hours a day. Do you right. think they're going to have a dedicated unit in Philadelphia Police Department to look at those hours and hours of footage, like years worth of footage? from all the police on the force in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, no, Officer that, Jones that let makes, that guy off for speeding like yeah, three years that makes, ago. Like, yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. Maybe in a small town that has maybe a dozen cops, that might be somewhat feasible. But not. I always envision it being something like if something happens, you go back to the tape or it just keeps, you know. You just go go on with your day, and you don't check the video. Or you don't save every tape. Yeah. You don't, they get yeah, gets, you don't the stuff gets recorded tape. over unless exactly it gets recorded over every day unless there's a reason to look at the footage, right? So to speak, right? Am I alone in that? No, thinking? that that makes yeah, sense. I, I think this is it's more an argument against. I mean, to get rid of speeding tickets and get rid of these, you know, tickets for nonviolent crimes and anything else. If that's that's what people are worried about, let's get rid of those laws and. I mean, we can right. still go forward. Let, with, let's with change the laws cameras. and and make police more accountable and protect. Yeah, we could kill kill two birds with one stone. Right. I think. And frankly, I, think I mean, I think it protects police more than anything because the fact is, if if Officer Wilson's account is accurate, and it just to we haven't really discussed his account at all, but essentially what it comes down to is, uh, um, his story is that Michael Brown was walking in the middle of the street, and we might consider that jaywalking a very petty crime, and it is. 
But, you know, he, he told him to get off the street. I mean, you know, I can see if I'm an 18-year-old kid with a bit of an attitude, I wouldn't like being told that. At the same time, my reaction wouldn't be a violent confrontation with the police officer. It would be get off the fucking street. Um, but and I'm not even saying that he immediately, you know, reached to violence with the police officer because again, none of us know exactly what happened. But the the story is that he then heard something about a robbery and that Michael Brown perhaps matched the description, and that's when the police officer went back, and that's when somehow a physical confrontation ensued. Now there, it's some people say that the police officer reached out of his car and grabbed Michael Brown. To me, just on the surface, that seems a little far-fetched because why would a police officer do that when they can get out of their car? doesn't seem like an advantageous situation to just reach out of your car. I've never seen a cop do that in my life. Um, at the same time, it seems really stupid for an 18-year-old kid, Michael Brown, especially if he did just commit a robbery, as, as we know he, he did. I mean, we have a videotape. There wasn't a trial about it, but I mean, pretty much even his defenders accept that he did commit this petty robbery of um, you know stealing cigars and kind of roughing up the store owner not long before this incident. So that, that part's not really disputed um you know so if if i'm him and i just stole this shit i'm not messing with a police officer at all i'm if i'm I'm at least gonna cooperate maybe or i'm gonna run the hell away if i'm you know if i really did commit a crime and i want to get away but to leap to a confrontation with the police officer seems uh, seems crazy to me too and the toxicology shows no you know showed nothing no pcp or any kind of drug that would hype someone up to get physical or anything i think there was i don't i again no research uh, i don't i don't know if it said there was marijuana in the system but i know i've heard references yeah. to him using they, marijuana but of course <clears throat> marijuana is not something known to lead to violent acts at all quite the opposite um said he had been smoking marijuana so you know what that yeah, does to people. i mean yes yeah, so crazy that actually makes it even less feasible that he was just crazy out of nowhere but who really knows and, and haven't and, you ever seen reefer madness <laughs> that, oh, oh wait was that a documentary <laughs> i, I always thought so. that was oh man i gotta watch that, <laughs> that was well, now live I, footage. I retract everything i said <laughs> then he probably did it he, that stoner um yeah but essentially we do know i mean there, there's no doubt that a physical confrontation ensued so what we don't know is exactly how it was initiated and what we don't know is you know if officer wilson legitimately had reasons to commit a killing in self-defense now let's just take a sidetrack and forget the incident for a second Uh, what do you guys think is an appropriate time to take a life i mean i mean when it comes down to it because you know if you carry a firearm or any weapon a knife your fists i mean our fists are weapons and anybody that's been trained in any kind of martial arts i've done a little martial art training knows that i mean a fist can kill somebody very easily if you know what to you to do with it so we're all in some way carrying deadly weapons on us and we all have the ability to use them and you know so when do you think it's morally feasible to take that step where you basically know that the action you're taking is going to result in the death of another human being? What, what What's your thoughts on that, JB? Well, I imagine for me personally, I would say in the defense of life, whether it be my own or somebody else that I could potentially prevent, I think that would be acceptable. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say in the defense of property. I don't think it's worth taking someone's life if they're taking your things but you know to protect the life and the sanctity as archaic a word that sounds like if i see someone being raped and the only way i could prevent it is by ending the life of someone i'd be willing to do that but things such as property i don't think are worth taking someone's life but but that can also get a little hazy because let's see let's say someone is broken into your house and um you know you wake up in the middle of the night and you see someone in your house taking your property. Now, maybe in that case, you say they're only taking your property. 
but there's also a stranger in your house in the middle of the night, and maybe you have a kid, and maybe you don't have time to decide if he's just there to steal something or if he has, you know, a a, a more nefarious purpose. So, I mean, well, that's well, that's true. In the, in that case, I, then I don't know. He he put himself in the position where where I feel like my life and the life of my family are, are in danger. So then I would have to do what I need to do. But for same example, if I happen to be woken up by someone trying to steal my car in my driveway, I don't feel like using deadly force is appropriate. All right. That's an interesting perspective. I mean, I think I think there's what we need to distinguish here, and not necessarily at this moment, but just something to think about. There's a distinguishment between our personal moral thoughts of what we would do and then what we think maybe a legal code should be. Because I, I, I think it is maybe, like, I would think it's legally permissible to allow someone to physically stop someone from taking their, their property. At the same time... I, me personally, I don't think me physically stopping someone from taking my property means I need to kill them. You know, I think I can run out of the house and say, get off my fucking car, <laughs> get away from my car and, you know, back up or what I can do all sorts of things short of actually taking his life. And then if he, if he for the well, I'm not saying you do nothing. Yeah, no, I know, oh, I know, no, I know I'm what you're saying. saying. Oh, Absolutely. by all means, take my Kia. No, I'm not I, saying. I think, I think what you're saying, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is try to exercise caution and not jump to murder for every, everything that might be exactly. you know, violating your property. At the same time, I think you also recognize in the heat of a moment, you can't always make that distinction. And, and then you might need to err on the side of taking a life. And again, I haven't been in this situation ever. So it's, I don't know. It's all conjecture. It's, it's very easy to say what you will and will not do in the comfort of your own exactly. chair and talking with your friends. But when right. you're involved in a situation that's terrifying, it's hard, you know, it's hard to make measured rational decisions. And even that's a speculation, but I feel a pretty solid one. Right. Yeah. You know? Odie, what do you think about well, all this? You have to remember that uh, when, when police are trained, you know, police are supposed to only pull their gun when their life is in danger or when they, when they think their life may be in danger or they could be critically injured. And I think that if it's true, if Michael Brown was grabbing for the officer's gun, I mean, why else would he be grabbing for his gun other than to, to use it? Or you have, you have to think that way. So if, if that's the case, if that's what happened, then just the, the just the just Michael Brown trying to take Officer Darren Wilson's gun, you know that's that's he's going after he's, he's trying to I'm not going to say he's trying to kill him, but he's trying to harm him. Why else would he be trying to take his gun? So if if that is true, and I think the grand jury, I guess they at least you know decided that beyond a reason reasonable doubt they couldn't prove that that would be. Untrue. Well, the grand jury doesn't need to decide beyond a reasonable doubt. The grand jury just needs to decide that there is a reason right, to right. Um, have a trial. That's, that's actually a lower threshold. The trial is where you have to decide if there's a reasonable right, doubt. Right, right. Um, it's basically like a prosecutor, and obviously, I mean, we, we can definitely incorporate some bias on the, on the side of the prosecutors here uh, for sure because, you know, they're all working for the same organization. You can definitely argue that they might want to cover up for the, the police. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not, definitely not discounting that. But generally, a prosecutor will not – even attempt to indict someone unless they think that they will get a conviction in trial. Because, you know, if there's not enough evidence for a, con- for a conviction, there's no point to go to a trial. There's just not. And, I, and that was what originally happened in the George Zimmerman clay- case. I mean, they only went to trial be- later because of the public outrage. Um, you know, they, they took a look at it and said, this is a very clear case of self-defense. And you guys might think differently, but I'm just reporting what they said at the time. This is a clear case of self-defense. That's why we're not bringing charges. And, you know, obviously it became a national issue and 
they eventually did go to trial for that reason. And I think that's why even the, it came up for indictment here is that I don't think they were even going to bring it up for indictment at all until it became a national issue, until it became a public outrage. And then they said, all right, well, we need to convene a grand jury here because that's the first step in this. And the grand jury spent a lot of time looking at evidence and they decided there was no reason to go to trial. Whether they're right or wrong, I, I can't really say because I wasn't on that grand jury and I wasn't seeing all the evidence. But they did uh, publicly, which they don't, re- they rarely do, release all the evidence from that grand jury hearing. So obviously, this is just a couple of days ago. We haven't gone through it all, but uh, people out there are doing it, and there's you know there's a lot of interesting information out there. But there's a few things that I've seen that I do, you know, we do know, okay. And we do know that Michael Brown reached for the gun. I mean, that's pretty much indisputable. The residue was on his hand. I mean, it's it's very clear that he he grabbed the gun of, of Officer Wilson at some point. It's also very clear that Michael Brown struck Darren Wilson. So with knowing those two facts and what, what John said earlier, that if you're reaching for the gun, and that's the same thing George Zimmerman said. He said he reached for my gun. Uh, we don't have the, the same kind of evidence, I think, with that because Trayvon Martin didn't grab the gun. He didn't get that far. So we don't have the uh, you know the, the actual evidence in, in that terms, but um, we do have the evidence with Michael Brown that he did grab the gun, and that being the case, regardless of what you think about maybe the laws that led up to the incident, any kind of previous biases in the in the you know w- with the police system, if that is the case, if that's true, if Michael Brown did strike Darren Wilson and reach for his gun, to me. It's it's really hard to say that it wasn't self defense, and, and that and that's without knowing what really happened, but just knowing those couple bits of information. Well, folks, if this seems like a random time to end the show, that's because it is. <laughs> at this point in the conversation, unbeknownst to us at the time, we did experience some technical difficulties, and sadly, we could not recover the remainder of our little chat here. Now, a lot of other shows out there might try to trick you, do some fancy editing, maybe re-record the last few minutes of our talk. But here at Lions of Liberty, we strive for truth and justice. So I'm just going to come out and tell you guys the truth, and the truth is, that's really all we've got, folks. But, you know, hey, maybe it's the universe's way of just telling us, fellas, you've rambled on enough. You've had enough to drink. Let's just tone it down, scale it back, take a rest, and we'll come back and do it again next time. To paraphrase the great Bill Murray in his role as Peter Vankman, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to have our conversation abruptly end at this point in time. But I would like to pass along the kind words of both John Odermatt, Odie as I call him, and JB that they did give out to their families when we went through our little roundup at the end. And you know they were very thankful, both of them, uh, you know, to the support that their families have given them in life. And I think that's very important to have your family and to have a strong support system to, to help you through things and to help craft that the person that you are and the person that we've become. And that applies to all of us. That applies to myself. I just got off the phone with my dad not that long ago. I uh, even interviewed him for the show. And of course, you can find that interview at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. But we still had a good time. We hope he gave you some things to think about regarding the Ferguson situation, regarding the ethics of the use of violence. And, you know, we encourage you to join this conversation. Come over to our social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Find us over on Twitter, at lionsofliberty. 
Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or however you listen to us on the go. And of course, you can hear a new episode of the show every single Thursday, published over at lionsofliberty.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher, and throughout the week at truthbetoldmedia.com, at lrn.fm, the Liberty Radio Network. There are just so many ways you can join this conversation and you can hear this show each and every week, and we hope you'll continue to do so. And of course, come back every month. As we mentioned, Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor will now be a monthly feature on this very podcast, and we've got some big plans going forward. So if there's a time to get in and check out our past archive again at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, the time to do it is now because we're going to have so much great content coming at you in the future. And of course, from myself, from John Odermatt, from J.B. Lubin, from all the Lions of Liberty, I just want you to do one thing until then, and that is to live long and live free.